This morning we're starting a brand new series uh, called How to Study the Bible. And over the next three weeks, you might have been able to tell from the title, uh, we'll be looking at How to Study the Bible. Uh, And I named the series so you can tell how creative I am. Uh, And so this is is really important because um, my, my goal in this series is to equip you uh, to not just read the Bible uh, on your own time. I hope you're doing that. Some of you may be doing that. Some of you maybe are not. But I hope that as a result of this series, number one, you'll be motivated to, to more regularly read your Bible. But I want to give you tools to begin to learn how to actually study the Bible. Uh, there are two ways of really reading the Bible. The first way is uh, to read the Bible devotionally. Uh, And that is that you maybe have a reading plan. Maybe you had a friend that told you to start in this place at this book or this gospel. And so you begun reading there. And you read it devotionally, which is you, you read it just to see how it impacts you. How does it impact you emotionally? How does it impact you spiritually? Uh, Anytime that someone says, I was reading, uh, and then this, this phrase, this story, this word jumped off the page... Uh, that is the Holy Spirit working in your life as you read the Bible devotionally. In other words, you're not, doing any, you're not looking up any Greek words. You're not doing any cross-references. Uh, you're just reading the Bible and seeing how the Spirit of God might speak to you. That's a great way to read the Bible. Uh, that's a great way to read the New Testament, the Gospels, the Pauline Epistles. Uh, it's even a great way to read some of the Old Testament. I mean, if you read uh, Genesis and Exodus, I mean, the, the speed of the narrative reads like a Hollywood film. I mean, it just, the action never slows down until you get the numbers. And then you've got to make it through Leviticus and Chronicles and all these kinds of things. And you know, then you start, like, when, you, when your reading plan lands you in Leviticus and you're reading the Bible devotionally, things can get pretty hairy and difficult. Uh, And so what I want to do is help you to give you some tools on how to study the Bible, which is the other way of reading the scripture. Uh, When you read the scripture, you can begin to know how to study it. And that is, I'm not going to tell you how to teach, how to know Greek, and I'm not going to teach you Greek. uh, But I'm going to give you some tools on on what references and what resources to pull from that you might be able to study the word. That you might be able to do some word studies. Uh, in the last week of the series, which is two weeks from today, I'm going to show you how to use your Bible. Because you uh, maybe have read your Bible and it has all kinds of footnotes and it has this little, like, middle margin with all these crazy business and you have no idea what that means or how to use it. I'm going to show you how to use your Bible and get the most out of the Bible that you own already. Uh, and, and so that's really how to study the Bible is looking at cross-references, word studies, studying themes, how to study a book, all of these kinds of things. And so that's really the goal uh, is, is to move us from using the Bible purely devotionally. That's good. That's helpful. That's great. We all should be doing that. But also give you some tools on how to study the Bible. Uh, because I believe that, uh, that life change comes not just when the Spirit works directly through devotional reading. But life change happens when we seek to understand his word and when and the spirit works in the understanding and the spirit is at work in the gaining of wisdom. Are you with me? How many of you want to learn how to study your Bible over the next three weeks? Yeah, good. Some like a few of you. That's good. I wanted a little more enthusiastic support, but that's all right. Uh, but I have a lot. But basically today is I want to lay the groundwork. Uh, but because before we can understand the Bible, we have to stand under it. Uh, Before we can understand the Bible, we have to stand under it. That is to say that we have to accept its authority in our life. 
And so today I want to address the question of how in the world is the Bible authoritative? How is the Bible authoritative? Um, This collection of poems and narratives and letters and wisdom literature and prophecy um, that was written a long time ago, what does that have to do uh, with my life today? And, And how can those words written in a culture totally different from our own be authoritative in your life and in my life? And so I want to address that question. Um, but before I do that, <laughs> I want to talk about how we got our Bible. Um, because there's a pretty good chance that some of you might be wondering, how in the world did this collection of all these different kinds of letters and poems and all of that come together to be known as the Bible that we have today and buy at the, at the, you know, on Amazon or the superstore or wherever, right? Uh, and so I want to talk very briefly about how we got our Bible uh, to, to basically um, condense hundreds and thousands of years of history uh, into five minutes on how we got our Bible. And, and I, last night, uh, I saw the, my favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, who has just written a book that is 1,700 pages on the theology of Paul. And his lecture was condensing the 1,700-page book into 50 minutes. Uh, I'm going to do something similar here in the next five minutes when I try to tell you how we got the Bible. Uh, But I won't do it on the same intellectual level as him because I'm not nearly as smart as he is. Um, But it was was really fun to see a theologian and, and see, like... The celebrity, like culture of celebrity going on. I'm like, can I tell you a quick story? Um, <laughs> this guy, you know, we were like all wanting to meet N.T. Wright, you know. And so, uh, so, so we're in line. And this guy had N.T. Wright sign his Bible. And I was like, yo, like I'm not totally okay with that. I mean, it was just weird. It was just weird. So it was like this like. Like, we were all, like, theology nerds there, and then, like, there was this culture of celebrity going on. It was a very weird mix. Okay. How we got our Bible. First of all, the text, the words themselves. How in the world did they come about? Well, in the Old Testament, obviously, you have an original author who wrote them down. Uh, That is to say uh, that sometimes, because we're so far removed in terms of time from the Scripture, that we often forget that they have real historical context, that they're dealing with real people, real stories, real places, that someone, a real person, living, breathing, actually wrote these words down a long time ago. And so, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, these words begin with an actual person in actual history who wrote them down. Okay, you probably knew that. Uh, once the, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish scholars and the Jewish people had these, this group of people that what they did for a living was copy down what the original author had written. They were called, called the scribes. They were very, very meticulous in their copying down of the scriptures. And so they would take the original Manuscript, the one that was penned by the author, and they would take that copy and make a handwritten copy. Remember, the copy machine doesn't exist. The Internet's not around. None of that. And so they they couldn't pull it up on their Kindle. Nothing like that. And so they had to write it down by hand, all of the Old Testament. Uh, And that's what they did. And, And to be completely honest with you, we have very, very few of these original 
manuscripts. And the manuscript is not the original penned document, but one of the copies. We have very, very few of the Old Testament manuscripts. Uh, and, and the reason is because these scribes were so meticulous in their copying that if they found that a copy that they had made was damaged or faded in any way, they would destroy it. And they destroyed it for quality control. Because if they were making a copy from a copy, you can imagine that there's like a greater degree of inaccuracy that would happen along the way, right? Have you ever told a message to one person and then have them whisper it to the next and by the you get to the end, it's not even the same, it's not even close. And so to protect from that, anything that was damaged or faded, they would destroy. So that each copy was as if it was the original. Now, for a long time, we were very confident in the Spirit of God leading uh, those scribes and giving them wisdom and all of that, that what we had today was accurate, but for a large part, it was by faith. Until 1948, uh, where uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, uh, were discovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a copy, manuscripts, of the Old Testament in which we had every book of the Old Testament with the exception of Esther. And almost all of those books were complete. In other words, we had every book that appears in the Old Testament as we know it today. We had either a full copy of that book as a manuscript or a nearly complete copy of that manuscript. And it was 900 years older than anything that we had had. And so in 1948, it was a huge discovery of these very original manuscripts of the Bible. And so, of course, scholars all around the world celebrated. Nerds rejoiced. You know, it was, it was a great thing. Uh, and so what they did is they took these copies that were 900 years older than anything we had had, and they compared it to, the, to what was previously the oldest copies. And you know what they found? They were exact matches. Exact matches. Giving us great confidence that what we have today is in fact the words that were penned originally by the original authors, authors in the Old Testament. Uh, pretty incredible. When it comes to the New Testament, uh, we have... Uh, where in the Old Testament, uh, we have very few manuscripts. When it comes to the New Testament, we have literally thousands of manuscripts uh, of, of these New Testament letters written by Paul that were copied by scribes. And uh, we have tons and thousands of them to compare so that we have very, very strong confidence that, in fact, what, what, your, what, what your English Bibles are translated from these manuscripts are, in fact, what was penned by the original authors. Okay, so that's the text. When it comes to the canon, what is the biblical canon? Uh, The canon is the books that appear in the Bible and the order in which they appear. That is known as the biblical canon. Uh, And you might be asking, well, how in the world did anybody decide what books end up in the Bible? Um, The short answer and the Christianese answer and the cliche answer is people didn't decide, God did. Um, and, and on a very fundamental level, I believe that. But there's a lot more to it. And, and many of you, if I just went up here and pounded my Bible and said, God created the canon. God created the canon. Some of you that are, you know, more, more scientifically minded or intellectually minded might say that's not satisfactory. Uh, so there was a process of coming up with a canon. Uh, the word canon actually means uh, measuring stick. Uh, and so it actually became a way of talking about measuring the value of these 
ancient writings. And so first of all, why did the church even decide to canonize? Why did they decide that we need to gather up these, these letters, these books, and put them in the Bible? Uh, the first was that there was a lot of false doctrine going around. And with false doctrine spreading all over the place, it motivated the church, uh, the early church, to adopt official writings that contained the truths that they would live by. Uh, because there was all kinds of false doctrines going around, they said, we need to decide what is the, the official writings of the church whereby we determine truth. And so that was one motivation to canonize these letters. The second one was not just false doctrine, but false writings. Uh, in other words, there were lots of people going around just, just, uh, that, that maybe weren't first witnesses to the life of Jesus or to the missionary journeys, journeys of Paul uh, or any of these things, and they just decided they're going to start writing some stuff, spreading it around. And so there was a lot of false writings that were seeking to fill in the details. What was Jesus' childhood look, look like? What was this? What was that? Um, all of these kinds of things. And so uh, many of the false writings then also included false doctrine. And so because of false doctrine, false writings, the church was motivated. We need to determine what are the letters and the, the writings that, that are, uh, contain truth uh, about that we will live by. And then, of course, persecution. Uh, around A.D. 303, the church came under fierce persecution where all the Christian books uh, were, were burned by the edict of a guy named Diocletian. And so this guy named Diocletian made an edict. He said all Christian books must be burned. Uh, and so the church, under that heavy persecution, had to determine what are the most sacred writings that we must protect at all costs. And so between false writings, false doctrine, and persecution, the church was obviously motivated to determine what writings will we live by that will determine the truth that we live by. And so by the time the persecution, uh, by the time of that persecution, the canon was generally agreed upon that, that by A.D. 303, the Bible that we have today was the Bible that they were using and reading and circulating and copying and, and, and sending around and, and learning orally, right, and, and memorizing and passing on and all of that. And so the Bible that we have today, by and large, is the same as what was finalized in A.D. 303. And then church councils were held to debate those books uh, in the years that followed and almost every Every book came under fierce debate as to whether this is actually a sacred writing. Uh, but in fact, we believe the Holy Spirit uh, guided the men and women through that process and that what we have as a canon today was, is in fact what God intended from the beginning to be in our scriptures. Uh, so some books were certainly more debated than others, but it was eventually agreed upon that the books contained in our Bibles today are the official canon. And it is a closed canon. In other words, if we discover some brand new writing uh, that's ancient and helpful and meaningful, it won't find its way into the scripture. Uh, Orthodox Christianity says that the scriptures, as we know it today, is a closed canon. It cannot be added to. It cannot be taken away from. This is the book that we have, we study it, we live by it, um, and it has authority in our lives. Now, some of you may know that the Catholic Church also recognizes a set of books called the Apocrypha as being canon. And so there is some difference between what the Catholic Church says is canon, what the Protestant Church says is canon, uh, but, but they have more in common than they have in different, and so we shouldn't fight over the differences, but we should rather celebrate what is in common. You with me? All right, so how did I do? Was that five minutes? You may not be interested in that, but I feel like it's important of how we got our scriptures. Yeah? Yeah. That's right. Okay. Um, 
that still doesn't answer the question that we asked originally. And that is the question of, in what way is the Bible authoritative in my life? The Bible makes a couple of really strong claims about itself regarding its authority in our lives. Uh, In two passages in particular, uh, the Bible states very clearly about the authority that it has in our lives and over our lives. One of them is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says this, For the word of God is alive and it's active. That is to say that these words aren't just black ink on, on pages. But these words in the scriptures are alive and active. That's what the Bible claims about itself. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training up in righteousness. And so the Bible makes some pretty bold claims about its authority in our own lives. It's, it's living and active. It's sharp. It, it penetrates into our hearts. That's why when you read the scriptures devotionally, something jumps off the page. You feel this this this. This presence around you, you can't exactly describe it. It's the presence of God. It's the Holy Spirit living in your heart, guiding you, directing you, instructing you, correcting you, convicting you. That when all I was doing is I was just reading, I was just going to go to bed, and then all of a sudden the words jumped off the page and they were alive and I had to do something and it either brought me to tears or it motivated me to change or I had to make that call to say I forgive you or whatever it is. The Word of God is alive and active if you read it that there's something to these pages there's something to these words that the Holy Spirit is living in them and working through them in our lives and then all scripture is God breathed which is a way of the scripture affirming itself uh, that that it's authoritative in our lives that it, it appears to us as God intends and that every word was motivated by the Holy Spirit through human authors do I believe that the human authors entered into some sort of uh, like disembodied trance and then they like and started writing these words and then all of a sudden woke up and had no idea what happened? I don't believe that. Uh, because what we find is that, that Luke is a doctor and his Greek is more complicated than Matthew and Mark. And so his personality comes through. In his gospel, we find that that Paul has very common similarities through all of his letters. In other words, the personality of the writer, the human author, comes through in the books. But we do understand that God worked through them to write these words. And so they're Holy Spirit-inspired and God-ordained words. And they're authoritative in our lives. And so the scripture itself makes pretty strong claims about its authority in our lives. But at the same time, the Bible also says in Romans 13 verse 1 that all authority is from God. And in Matthew 28 verse 18, it says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the resurrected Jesus. And so on one hand, scripture states it's very authoritative in our lives. On the other hand, scripture says quite authoritatively that authority doesn't belong to the pages itself, but to God. Which is it? (laughs) Anytime you ask the question, which is it? It is almost always both. It is almost always both. And so, Scripture states that authority belongs not to the words on the page, but to the person of Christ. 
John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh. He does not say, in the beginning was the Word. And then the Word was written down. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And then the Word became flesh. What I want to say to you today, and what I want you to understand when it comes to why the Scripture is authoritative in our lives, is this truth. The Word of God is, not pri- is, is primarily a person, not a book. The Word of God is a person, not a book. But the book is the most complete revelation of the person. Ha, 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 ha. Are you with me? Did you catch it? The Word of God is a person, not a book. But the book is the most complete revelation of the person. So if you want to know the person, you got to read the book. In other words, let me say it to you this way. Uh, when When we talk about the authority of Scripture in our lives, what we're really talking about is the authority of Christ as it is exercised through the scripture. You with me? When we talk about the authority of of the book, it's it's a shorthand way of saying that all authority belongs to God in Christ and that his authority plays out in our lives through the book. And so we're not not giving a whole bunch of, of credence to a printing press that printed black ink on white pages. We're giving a bunch of credence to a bound collection of pages in which Christ is present. Are you with me now? Are you with me now? <laughs> and so... The, the, the Bible is authoritative is really the authority of God exercised through Scripture. That's what we're really talking about. And so the question remains then, well, what is this book? And how does God exercise his authority through this book? Does God primarily show his authority in our lives through this book by a collection of rules? And for a long time, that's how people have seen the Bible. The Bible is a collection of rules. It tells me what I can't do on Friday night. It tells me what I'm not supposed to do on the weekend. It it, it does this and it does that. That the Bible tells me all the things that you shouldn't do if you want to be a Christian. And a lot of people have seen the Bible that way. And that's how the authority plays out in our lives. The Bible is authoritative only because it, 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 it gives us a whole bunch of rules by which we ought to live by. And so the Bible becomes simply that, a collection of rules that define what we should and should not do in our lives, very similar to an army sergeant entering the room and spouting off instructions. And so for many people, the Bible holds authority in the same way as an army sergeant giving rules. Is that how God uses his authority or exercises his authority through Scripture? Or maybe it's through doctrines. Is that how God does it? Is is the, is the, the revelation of himself in the scriptures, he wants to exercise authority in our lives by offering us lots of, of clean doctrines and, and propositional truths and, and things that we can put on bumper stickers and pencils and stickers and, and, and tweet out to all the followers that we have. <laughs> is that how God does it? Through doctrines? 
Well, I don't think that's how he does it either. If we do that, then it makes the Bible just a book of true statements about the nature of God that could be easily put on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. Now, the Bible does reveal true doctrine about God. And the Bible does contain rules, commands about how we ought to live. But the commands are given in order to enrich our lives, not hinder. The rules are given as a gift to us, not as a way of, of, of hindering or, or making our weekend no fun. And the doctrines are given as a way of revealing his character, not so that we can just be smarter. The doctrines are given to form our lives, not just give us information. But even all of those things, even though it contains rules and even though it contains doctrines, fundamentally that's not what the Bible is. If you've been a part of this church for very long, you've heard me say this and you'll hear me say it again and again. But what this is, is it contains doctrine about God. It contains rules. But it's not primarily either one of these. This book is primarily a story. This book from beginning to end, from the first page of Genesis, in the beginning was God, into the very last pages of Revelation, Lord, come quickly, amen, is a story that is coherent, that makes sense, that we can see it broadly in all of its beauty. Now, within the big story are lots of little stories, right? The ones you learned in Sunday school about Noah's Ark and David and Goliath and the Good Samaritan and all of those. There's lots of little stories, but overall, what the Bible is doing is telling one big story. Well, then the question is immediately raised. Well, how in the world is a story authoritative in my life? I mean, because when this was a book of rules, I can get a hold of that. Because rules tend to be pretty authoritative, right? Uh, the traffic sign has authority in our life. It's a rule. You follow it. You either, if you don't follow it, you get in a wreck or you get a ticket. You follow it and you're all good, right? If the Bible was a set of rules, it's easy to see that authority. If the Bible was a set of doctrines, it's easy to see that authority too. And so how in the world, if this is a story, how in the world can it be authoritative in my life? How can it mean anything in my life if it's just a story? Well, I would say to you, it's a story, but it's not just a story. It's not just a story. Uh, it's a story that is much more powerful than any just a story. And in fact, this begs the question, imagine that same army sergeant walking into a room and saying to his soldiers, once upon a time. The soldiers would think he had gone nuts. What's wrong with this guy? I mean, he doesn't have any authority. He's telling me a bedtime story, once upon a time. That doesn't make any sense. How is that authoritative in my life? I mean, they would be confused, maybe insulted as though they were childish. But let me say to you that I believe stories are much more powerful than you think. Because stories provide the context for the rules and the doctrines. If you don't have a story, then the rule exists just in a vacuum. I mean, it makes no sense to have a rule without a context, without a story, 
without a narrative. And so when you think about the Bible as a story that contains rules, that contains doctrines, all of a sudden there's, do- there's life that is brought to those commands of God. There's life that is brought to, to those doctrines and those revelations of who God is in his character. It's a beautiful thing. Imagine that same army sergeant coming in and briefing the soldiers on the events of the past few weeks in order to bring them up to speed about what is happening uh, so that they can understand the dynamics of peace of the peacekeeping task that they are about to undertake. And then the rules come. And then the mission comes. Imagine if, a, if the mission had context. If the rules had a story. Then all of a sudden it begins to make sense. And the soldiers are not just blindly following because of the, of the authority of the rules. But rather they begin to take on that story and begin to live it out much more accurately, much more passionately, much more in line with the story because they know the context you see stories have much more power in our lives than you can ever know and the reason I told the story about N.T. Wright and a bunch of theology nerds listening to a lecture but mixed into that is the story of celebrity here's this guy who probably if you were to watch his day to day life he sits in a library or an office all day writing articles and books and then every now and then travels around and speaks and gives lectures on theology. This is not a glamorous life. But because his books have made a difference in our lives, because we resonate with what he says, and because celebrity is one of the primary narratives of our culture, we're drawn to him as a celebrity. And we want him to sign our books and Bibles. Now, I'm not mad at anybody that had them sign, and I was quite tempted to do it. And I had, if I had brought a book by N.T. Wright, I may have. But all I'm saying is that one of the grandest narratives in our culture right now is the, culture, is the narrative of celebrity. Which is why you have people that will put stuff on YouTube and just, just die for their 15 minutes of fame. If their video could go viral. Because what, does it, what, is it, what do people want more than anything? You talk to teenagers in a junior high and high school. What do they want more than anything? They want to be famous. They want to be a celebrity. They want to be well-known. That's the narrative of celebrity having authority in the lives of our culture and our teenagers. Stories don't mean anything. Oh, yes, they do. In fact, I would, I would argue with you, and I would contend to you, that stories are actually one of the most authoritative things in our life. What does the story of your life say about who you are and where you hold your allegiance and what's really important to you. Let me give you another example of story being powerful. You, you may have heard that uh, there is a dramatic increase in bike and bike car accidents in Fort Collins. You heard that on the news this past week? Uh, in fact, within two days, there was, this, there was an ac- bike car accident at the same intersection two days in a row. There's this huge increase in uh, these kinds of accidents. Uh, and, and so the city could, could do, uh, they could make a lot more rules, right? They could, uh, they could teach the cyclists all the rules about 
uh, staying in the bike lane and, and how, to, you know, how to signal your hands for which direction you're turning and wearing a helmet and all of these kinds of things. They could, they could talk to the, to the drivers and say, you need to be aware of cyclists. And before you make a right-hand turn, always check your rearview mirror. Is there a cyclist coming down the bike lane? They could come up with lots and lots of rules. Or they could tell a story. They could tell a story about a cyclist or a driver who didn't follow the rules was in an accident that ended tragically. Because the rule means nothing outside of a context. But if you put the rule inside of a context of here's what happens or what may happen if you don't follow the rule, then all the story, all of a sudden that story has authority in our life. In fact, think about this. How many of you knew some kind of rule in a particular context? And maybe we could stay with this example. You knew that you were supposed to do this when you're on the road. You knew that you were supposed to wear a seatbelt. You knew the rules, but they weren't important to you until a story happened. Until you were in an accident. A friend was in an accident. You heard somebody that, that, was, uh, you know, that had severe and permanent damage because they didn't wear their helmet. All of a sudden, that story plays out in our lives, has authority, and what do you do? You click your seatbelt, you check your thing, you turn on your blinker, and you wear your helmet. You're more aware of the rules and the doctrines and everything else because of the story. Are you with me? Stories have absolute authority in our lives. Um, Think of the movies that you have seen or the books that you have read that have changed you. I mean, you, you, you finish the book, you, 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 covered the, you, you, put, you, you close the back cover, you, you turn the DVD player off, and that story that you just watched, that narrative that doesn't exist in the real world, that was made up by some writer, and yet at the same time, as a result of, of hearing that story and watching that story, listening to that story, involving yourself in the story, It changes you. You're left inspired to change, to think differently about life or love. You're motivated to be a better person. Uh, On and on and on the list could go. We can't help but get involved in a story. And when a story changes you, it's exercising authority in your life. Uh, I, I recently heard a whole piece on NPR about War of the Worlds. How many of you know War of the Worlds? And, and, I, and I suppose that the Tom Cruise movie falls into that thing. But what I'm talking about is the original War of the Worlds, which was actually written back in the 1800s. Then it was redone as a radio show. Uh, and the, the original radio show uh, was done as a drama. But when people listened to it, do you, you know this story? They thought that, that the aliens really were attacking. And people went absolutely berserk over this false story. And you would think that we would learn our lesson. That, that there's no way that someone could tell that exact same story on the radio in the exact same way and have people fall for it. But in fact, it has happened multiple times throughout history. They, they did it in the United States the first time on the radio. Then they did it in Ecuador. Same thing. People went berserk. The aliens are attacking. Then they came, brought it back and they did it again and again. And every time, people have believed the story. And so this, this NPR story, this NPR piece said, why in the world do we keep falling for the same trick of war in the worlds? 
And they asked a psychologist, and the psychologist said, we can't help but enter in to a story. That stories are the most authoritative things in our life. And the example that he gave was, watch a tense scene of a movie that you've seen a hundred times, and I can promise you that when you watch that tense scene, even though you know the outcome, if you were to measure what's happening inside your body, your blood pressure would raise, your pulse would increase, all of that, even though you know the outcome, you can't help but enter the story. Stories have authority in our lives. And so in the wisdom and brilliance of God, when he wants to reveal his authority in our life through pages of a book, he does not give us a rule book that's just bullet pointed. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do that. Nor does he give us just a set of doctrines that could sit easily on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. But he offers us a story. And it is a beautiful, beautiful story. It's a story of promises made and then broken. It's a story of a loving Savior who offers grace in the midst of those broken promises. It's a story of heaven and earth becoming one. And he gives this story to us as a gift. And his invitation is get involved, enter in to the story. Because if we really want to know how to study the Bible, we first must understand what we're studying. And we first must stand under it. And so my invitation to all of you today is to have a new zeal and a new understanding of what this book is. I beg you, do not see it as a book of rules to hinder your life, but see it as a story in which God invites you to play your part. I beg you, do not see it as a book of doctrines by which to come to know the character of God, but I beg you to see it as a story in which you will come to know the person. And when you know the person, along with the doctrines that are here, you will certainly come to know the God who is revealed in these pages. So please begin to see it as a story, that when you read the story of David and Goliath, that when you read the story of Noah's Ark, when you read the story of the Good Samaritan, and you hear the parables of Jesus and his teachings, and when you see the the story of Paul as he plants churches in the book of Acts, may you come to know that these are not just stories that sit outside there, that have nothing to do with your life, but in fact, these are your Stories that God through Christ is building a brand new community, a brand new humanity called the church that offers to the world a brand new way of being human. That fundamentally, what this book does is it invites us in. But so many times when we read the book, instead of embracing it and, and, and welcoming that invitation, we keep it at arm's length. That as a way of when we study the Bible, We're not studying it for the transfer of information. We study it for transformation. That we might be changed as a result of the story that is told. So it's not a textbook. It's a storybook. And as any good story will, it changes us. And I would argue that every story, whether in film or theater, 
or books, every story that has changed you has borrowed from this story. Every good story borrows its plot elements from this story. And that's why it changes us. Because something inside of that movie, some some truth inside that piece of theater resonated with us and brought us back to the one true story that we're all involved in. The choice is, do we accept the God who is revealed in this story or do we reject him? Do we choose to follow his ways or follow our own? That is a choice we must all make. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click Online Giving.